All right. We are going to continue to talk about, I am going to continue to talk about <clears throat> voting. And this, the topic for today's rant is voting in the Christian ethic. You don't have to vote. Uh, in fact, you're listening to someone who did not vote for Donald Trump in 2016, and that was because I didn't vote at all. And the reason I didn't vote at all was not because I was a never-Trumper or anti-Trump in any way, shape, or form. It was a pragmatic decision. I thought Trump was going to get thumped. I thought he had virtually zero chance of winning the election, and I was way wrong. <laughs> couldn't have been more wrong, and I couldn't have been more pleased. Uh, my wife and I have already voted uh, here in North Carolina, and we did vote for Trump. So I don't know how many folks fit our bill, but I'm kind of hoping a lot. That said, if you do vote, it's kind of like this. It's not a sin to drink alcohol or to not drink alcohol. You're not engaging in the behavior of drinking alcohol. Your reason for that could be a sin. You're, but if you do decide to drink, if you do decide to drink, that is also a behavior. And your reason for that could be a sin. And how you go about it could be a sin. Uh, if you drink too much, it would be a sin. If your drinking causes another brother who thinks drinking is probably a sin to actually go ahead and drink, you have caused your brother to stumble. He has basically engaged in behavior that violates his own conscience. This is why the Bible says, whatever you do, you have to do in faith. You, you have to operate according to your conscience. So it could become a sin. Voting is a behavior. And voting in and of itself, filling in one of those little ovals, is not a sin in any way, shape, or form. But as a Christian, you have to be guided by biblical principles for your behavior. Your behavior is not neutral. You should do things for a reason. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode of the Reformed Rant, Voting and the Christian Ethic. To date, many celebrity pastors have weighed in on voting, and the overwhelming majority of them, almost to a man, has advocated for some kind of neutrality in voting. Most of us know, or believe anyhow, that this really isn't neutrality at all, that it is a, a deliberate attempt to push evangelicals away from supporting the GOP, which they've traditionally done. At any rate, I'm going to deal with what's in front of me, the facts. Mark Dever employs the one voting argument, criticizes the idea of being a one-issue voter as if that kind of thinking 
is irrational or, de- or defective in some way, or perhaps even that that kind of thinking is inconsistent with Christian morality. I'm going to talk about that. John Piper and many others employ the to-the-man fallacy in his arguments. Trump is loud and obnoxious and has a, a checkered past with women and is unfit for the office. And so you, a Christian, cannot in good conscience vote for him. I'll deal with that. Russell Moore has led the charge to equate economic equality and open borders with abortion, calling all of these things pro-life and insisting that unless you embrace all of his views on immigration and economic equality and privilege and so on and so forth, then you're not really pro-life. Another absurd argument equivocating on the definition of what has traditionally been called the pro-life position. J.D. Greer has compared homosexuality with capitalism and concluded that God screams about greed and only whispers about sexual sin. Matt Chandler jumped on the uh, hands-up don't shoot bandwagon and uh, sided with the Michael Brown law-breaking crowd over law enforcement officers and turned out to be absolutely wrong. And in fact, we have information from within Chandler's church that uh, reveals some very disturbing behavior on Chandler's part at that time and how he treated law enforcement officers who were even part of his congregation at the time. It's very disgusting when you look at how these men who are supposed to be representing the truth of Scripture, how they conduct themselves in society when it comes time to pander to certain groups because they want to present particular optics to a particular group. J.D. Greer urged Christians to take up the calls of the principle of Black Lives Matter. We should stand up for them. Just like he said, we should should fight for the rights of homosexuals as Christians. That should be something that's on our agenda, part of our mission. Most of these men... I would venture to say probably every single one of them somewhere along the way, if you could have followed them around, would have heard this word used to describe the shootings in 2020 that have made the headlines, uh, describing all these incidents as murder. To refer to an incident like that, like any one of these incidents that have risen to uh, high visibility in 2020, the Floyds, the Aubreys, um, the kid up in Kenosha, Breonna Taylor, to refer to any of these incidents as murder, based on the information that I have access to, and I have access to the same information everybody else has access to. And I can tell you, speaking objectively, 
There isn't a single incident that should be characterized as murder. And to do so prematurely, before there has been a, an examination of all the evidence, a trial, a hearing, and a jury decision, is slanderous. Absolutely should be avoided by any and every Christian, and especially pastors. Now, how should you, as a Christian, think about this issue that's coming up the first couple of days of November, voting? I'm going to talk about the myth of moral neutrality in voting. A lot of people are pushing that. I'm going to talk about the Christian's, the Christian's life duty. Why are we here? What, what are we called to I'm going to talk about value voting. There is no other way for a Christian to vote, but that that behavior has to be driven by their core beliefs, by their values, their principles. And those principles and values must be informed by Scripture. I'm going to talk about casting the ballot. What does it say about your beliefs? And what do your beliefs say about your Christianity? And then I'm going to discuss some popular but very bad arguments that are being tossed out by seminary-trained celebrity pastors who should know better. First, the myth of moral neutrality. Paul says in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do in work, whatever you say, whatever you do, everything should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through Him. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. There is no neutrality when it comes to our behavior. Our behavior must be geared to honor God, to follow Christ, to elevate the name of Jesus in society. Greg Bonson says, The believer who strives for neutrality unwittingly endorses assumptions which are hostile to the faith. So the minute you step over and try to be neutral or think that there's neutral ground, you have unwittingly stepped onto hostile territory. The Christian message is not congenial to the unbeliever, says Bonson, for it confronts him as a guilty sinner who is at war with his righteous creator and judge. Folks, this is what the Bible reveals to us about God. It's what the Bible reveals to us about unregenerate sinners, unbelievers. They are natural-born enemies of God. There is no neutrality, no neutral ground anywhere. You either with Christ or against Him. You either love God or you hate Him. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve both. Elijah, in 1 Kings 18.21, dealing with the prophets of Baal, asked the children of Israel, How long will you halt between two opinions? If Baal is God, then serve Baal. If God is God, if the Lord is God, serve him. And I should mention that after Elijah made his great presentation there on Mount Carmel, he uh, invited all the prophets of Baal and all the servants of Baal over to a banquet where they celebrated the leading prophets of Baal in an attempt to have reconciliation uh, between the prophets of Baal and the children of Israel, didn't he? No, that's not quite what happened, is it, folks? What did he do? What did Elijah do to the prophets of Baal? He didn't reconcile with them. He took them down to the river He ordered the children of Israel, the men there, not to let a single one escape. He took them down, and he killed every single one of them. Not one escaped the edge of the sword. This is serious business. If you don't think that God is not going to summon you someday to stand before him and to give an account, you are sadly mistaken. Paul in, first, in, in Galatians 1, verse 10, says, If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. What's Paul mean by that? He means that a celebrity pastor who is really worried about pleasing men, not upsetting men, not offending men, pleasing men, making sure men are content, satisfied with what he says, and how he says it, and what he does, and how he does it. If that's what's driving his behavior, then he's not a servant of Christ. Because Paul understood that if I'm going to be a servant of Christ, I am going to have to say things and do things that upset men, make them angry, and in some cases make them want to kill me. We have celebrity pastors in the OPC, in the PCA, in the SBC, and in every other denomination you can can think of, within evangelicalism, as we call it, uh, who are very concerned to say things in a way that please men. They won't go all the way because they're worried about what some human being will think about them. They won't talk about a certain subject because they're incredibly paranoid that someone will misunderstand it. Now, look, I get, (laughs) I kind of get that in a way. There's no justification for it. I'm not saying it's okay. But I am saying this. You can't do that. I know I I say things I think in some cases very clear and people just engage in the non sequitur over and over and over again. It's very frustrating. 
right? I can say, I can say this, the Bible doesn't condemn slavery. And all of a sudden, people think I want to bring slavery back. Or they think I'm defending every single aspect of the Atlantic slave trade that took place during that era. That's what they think. They think my interest is to defend racism. They think my interest is to defend some sort of system of oppression. It's not my interest at all. So I understand uh, pastors not wanting to say certain things because of what people will say about them, but you have to let the chips fall where they may. You say them as concise as you possibly can. Uh, make sure that they're true. They come from Scripture, and however man reacts to them, that's that's that man's business, not yours. You can't control how he reacts to it. Now, the point here is that there, the idea that there is neutrality in the behavior of casting a vote is a myth. Doesn't exist. There's no myth in vote. In, in there's the 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 myth of voting neutrally that you can vote for a Democrat or Republican as a Christian, and that there's no moral component to that is a myth. That was fun. All right. Moving on to the Christian's duty, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the game changes. You don't have a right to do whatever you want. You don't have a right to adopt beliefs you want. You don't have a right to engage in whatever behavior you want. You have no rights. Your life has been purchased by the blood of Christ. You are not your own. You belong to him. That being said, we go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the famous Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus quoted this in Matthew 22, 27, when he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What does that commit? If you want to just say, what is this commandment saying? It's saying this, you will love the Lord your God with all your being, with everything that is in you. Essentially, God is saying to the believer, there isn't, and he says this to all of his creation, there isn't a square inch in your being over which God does not say, mine. It's all mine. Modern American Christians don't live anything close to this kind of a mindset. It's foreign to our mindset. Right? We don't focus on this. We don't emphasize this in our in our preaching, in our teaching, in our training, in our discipleship, if we even have training in discipleship. We don't, we don't instill this mind, mindset in Christians. And that's a failure. That's a defect. That's a gap in the church that needs to be attended to, that needs to be corrected. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 20, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now we will quote these scriptures, but we don't spend any time really emphasizing this and driving it home and talking about what this means, 
What are the implications of 1 Corinthians 6.20 to how we live our lives in American society? They are significant. And Christians ought to be able to answer that question if we're doing our jobs. So the Christian's duty is to love God in all other behavior, regardless of what that behavior is. It has to be geared toward honoring God, elevating Christ. How do we do that? We're coming to that. So how do we vote? We vote our values. There is no alternative. We vote our values. What kind of society, within the context of the doctrine of total depravity, because we live in a pagan society, every Christian does all over the world. There's no Christian society on the planet. So we all live in pagan societies. We all live in societies that are filled with God-hating pagans. We don't live in a society where people are broken. They're victims of sin. They're struggling with COVID and just trying to make their way through this life. And if someone came along with just the the right positive message with the right tone, they would follow Jesus. You are deluded. You've lost your ever-loving mind. That is not biblical Christianity, but that is the message most people hear. It's not the message Jesus preached. Society is totally depraved, filled with God-hating pagans. That said, what kind of a society is best for Christianity, for the church, for the gospel? That's where our focus ought to be. You, You move away from that and you start to get into trouble. It's why I don't argue the abortion issue as the only issue for voting, even though I would say this. If my only choice was between two men, everything else being equal, and one was for abortion, one was against abortion, I would vote for the man against abortion. But that's hardly the case. It's rarely the case that those are the only issues. There are bigger issues than abortion in this election that's coming up. And abortion is a big one, but there are bigger ones. If you don't believe that, then something's wrong. I'll show you what I mean in in just a moment. So we want a society that is going to be the best society for Christianity, if we have a say. This is a blessing. Most Christians in the world don't, don't get to provide input on what their society should look like. Um, we do. And, and up until now, we, we have lived in a society where the integrity of that system has been... Uh, a system that we can have a fair degree of confidence in. So what kind of society is best? What is important? According to Scripture, is it economic equality? Is it the elimination of privilege? Is it perfect justice in a fallen pagan legal system? Do we really believe that's attainable? Is that the standard? A perfect justice system? where there's absolutely never an injustice? You Okay, I need to continue. I, I get off on these rabbit trails and make these arguments within arguments, and uh, I have to stop doing that. 
Do we want a society where intense persecution of the church exists like it does in other societies? Not all other societies, but in some other societies. Is that is that what we want? It isn't what Paul wanted. Do we want a society that is restricting the preaching of the gospel or certain parts of the gospel or certain parts of biblical truth? Jesus said this, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Christianity teaches that the only way, the only hope that society has is the gospel. And if that's true, there should be no other issue more important than the gospel, right? Since the gospel is society's only hope, we should seek to preserve a society where if nothing else flourishes, the gospel does. Oh no, I just I just committed the single issue fallacy. The single issue voting fallacy. I think it's safe to say that that the one issue that we cannot compromise on, that we have to seek to protect. All these other issues are important, but the one issue, if we have to say, look, if someone came to you and said, you can only have one issue, you cannot have uh, religious freedom, you cannot have, and, and abortion, and uh, heterosexual marriage, and so on. You can't have all three. You can have one. What are you going to pick? I'm going to pick the flourishing of the gospel because without it, it doesn't matter what all the other things that we get. It doesn't matter what else we have in this exchange, this, this trade. There's no hope for society. Society no longer has any hope if there is no gospel. Now somebody's going to say, well, you know... Um, there will still be a gospel. Well, yeah, there, there, there will still be a gospel, but I'm talking about the flourishing of the gospel. I'm talking about the freedom to walk up to a stranger, spark a com- start, start up a conversation, and turn that conversation to the gospel without getting fired and now being unemployed, losing your house, becoming a burden to the church. I mean, these people who talk about doing good for the poor do not understand that Christians— probably do more good for the poor than anyone else. But if Christians are being fired and losing their jobs, they're not going to be able to support their churches, not going to be able to support their, their pastors, and their churches are not going to be able to support as many missionaries, if any. And the poor is going to suffer even more so in that world than they do in this world. Because if you think these pagan God-hating people really do care about the poor, you better rethink your strategy. They don't care about the poor nearly as much as they want you to believe they care about the poor. So you must vote your values. And Christians, for Christians, that's not an option. The question is, what are your values? You profess to love Christ. You profess to follow him. You profess to fear God. That profession, as I said earlier, has implications on your beliefs. It has implications on how you live, on your behavior, what you do in certain circumstances. The circumstance of voting's coming. 
Your beliefs are going to drive you to vote a certain way. Are those beliefs consistent with your claim to love Christ, to follow Him, to fear God? Or are they not? Now, we look at the two options. What's the difference between the two party platforms? One party, the Democrats, haven't met an unborn baby they wouldn't murder. Plain and simple. They believe in absolute, total acceptance and even forced celebration of gay marriage. They don't just believe they should celebrate gay marriage. They believe you should celebrate gay marriage. And there's going to be consequences if you don't. Because not celebrating it is a problem. It's immoral. You're exchanging the morality of Christianity for the morality of pagan God-haters. This party believes in total acceptance and for celebration of transgenderism. I mean, these guys have their heads stuck so far up their butts that they think it's perfectly normal for a man to self-identify as a woman and compete in athletic competitions where the women have no chance of beating him. All because he says he's, he identifies as a woman. This party believes in a radical feminism. The very idea of male leadership, which is an idea that is central to Christian truth because of the design of creation. It's linked to how God ordered and structured society. It's not a secondary issue. If you believe what I just said, you're a misogynist, you're abusive, you're repugnant. This party, the Democratic Party, seeks to overturn constitutional liberties such as gun ownership. The very reason this country was founded, this party wants to unwind that and undo it. If you, if you took this party back to the 18th century... Prior to, um, prior to the, re the revolution, and you gave them their way, their wish, there wouldn't be an America. It would be a British colony or a collection of British colonies. We would not have the freedoms that we have today. This party pushes an unjust tax system where they use tax policy to remain in power. All people will say, no, they, they just, they, the rich should pay higher taxes so that the poor... Where in the Bible do you have this principle of forcing people to help the poor through tax policy? That is unchristian. That is not a biblical principle. You have Christians who think that it is biblical to force the rich to pay higher taxes so that we can give that money to the poor. There is nothing Christian about that idea because the Christian principle of giving is that it is always voluntary, out of love, not forced. So we have Christians adopting unbiblical principles, even where tax policy 
is concerned and supporting the Democrats for that reason. And it's an ungodly reason. Now, some people don't think through these issues very well. Hopefully, if you're a person who's never heard heard it put quite that way, maybe a light bulb goes off and you say, you know what, that's, wow, I never thought about it that way. That's true. Yeah, it is true. This party, in many of the major cities in the country, has pushed for defunding the police, all to accommodate a lawless mindset, because in their minds, the people who are going to keep them in power want the police defunded, so they're going to jump on the bandwagon to defund the police. See, these guys, their goal is to retain power. They will adopt whatever position they have to adopt in order to stay in power. And finally, uh, they push for a radical open borders policy, which places law-abiding citizens at risk. On the flip side, you have the, the, the GOP that opposes the murder of unborn babies. Uh, they would like to put an end to that, uh, even though they have not done so yet. They would like to do that. And let, let me just say this. Let me just say this. It is ending abortion, overturning abortion through the Supreme Court is not going to be an easy thing to do, even if Republicans have massive amounts of, of power in their direction because of previous Supreme Court decisions. The Supreme Court is very hesitant to go against previous rulings. So there has it has to happen in a different way, I think, if it's going to happen at all. You have to understand that. Um, limited government uh, is uh, the focus of this this uh, of the GOP. They believe in meritorious incentives. They believe that uh, there should be a system that rewards hard work. Um, this way, people will work hard. Uh, they'll put their their heart into their work, which the New Testament tells us to do that when it says to Christians, whatever you do, do it in, as unto the Lord. Do your work as unto the Lord. That means you should put your heart into your work and do a good job as if, as if Jesus is the one you're reporting to because, well, he is. The GOP promotes religious freedom. They seek to preserve the Constitution. They want to promote and preserve and protect uh, free speech. They want to protect gun ownership and personal property rights. They want a fair tax system to benefit both rich and the poor. Right? They support law enforcement and demand law and order. Right? Uh, they believe in fair but enforced immigration policies. It is not as if the GOP does not want immigrants coming to America. That is an absolute false narrative. It's not that at all. The, the, the immigration laws that we have in this country are very generous. But we have Christians who are out there advocating, you know, well, it's, all right. it's okay to just ignore them. Well, the scripture doesn't say that that's okay. All right. So what, what this comes down to is this. You're going to cast your ballot. And again, I'm going to ask the question, what does your vote say about your beliefs? And what do your beliefs say about your Christianity? Okay. If you're going to vote for, for the Democratic platform and you're voting your values, something's wrong with your values because something's wrong with your beliefs because something is wrong with your Christianity. We don't 
you've you've heard some guys talk about uh, disciplining people who vote Democrat or who are registered Democrats and support the Democratic platform. They're not arguing that it's the, you know you're filling in the circle for Joe Biden, so you should be disciplined, you should be rebuked and and corrected and so forth in your church. That's not what they're saying. They're saying that they're they're assuming and it, and we should be able to assume this that you're voting your values. And since you're voting your values and you're and that those that vote is going for Biden, then that says something about your values which tells us something about your beliefs, which tells us something about your Christianity. And that, my friend, is the issue that needs to be disciplined, that needs to be rebuked, that needs to be corrected. Uh, and brought into, into accord with Christian values, Christian beliefs, Christian doctrine, right? Okay, here's what you're doing. You go out and you vote for a Democrat. You're going to trade abortion for open immigration. This is what I hear. We have open borders, but we're still going to kill babies, Okay, that's what you're saying. You can kill as many babies as you want. Just just make uh, immigration wide open. You know, let the 500 and some children who who and or people I don't know what the numbers are down there. Let those folks go, and you can still kill your babies. And that's a Christian way to think. That's supposed to be a Christian way to think. Now, people don't like this because they, they want nuance. Well, I'm sorry. I'm not a guy of nuance. I like to take things to their logical end. I like to put my finger on the issue, right? Don't tell me you care about children on the border when you are all for a woman's right to murder her baby. You do not. You're a liar. You're a disgusting human being in my mind. Don't talk to me about how much you care about the poor, how you care about widows, how you care about orphans, how you want taxes on the rich so that the poor and the oppressed can do better in this life when you're going to stand by and defend a woman's right to murder her child. You don't get to go anywhere from there. If your position is you think a woman can murder her baby, you and I have nothing to talk about when it comes to how society structured, economically or otherwise. We're certainly not going to talk about racism if you think it's okay to kill a baby. I don't want to talk to you about racism. I mean, that, that's, like, that's like debating uh, the morality of rape with, uh, or the morality of pornography when the guy's a rapist. Are you serious? You, you go out and rape women every day and you want to talk to me about how men should not look at porn or look at a naked woman or notice an attractive woman? I mean, the level of depravity between the two is ridiculous. So don't tell me you care about a, a, a poor family in the inner city or in Appalachia somewhere when you're doing everything you can to make sure that all these women can murder their babies. I don't want to hear it. You're gonna make that's that's a fair trade to you. That's a Christian trade. It's a good trade. Hmm. God's design, you're going to trade God's design for human sexuality, for the acceptance and celebration of homosexuality and transgenderism. That's a fair trade. That's what we're, that's what we're hearing, guys. You're going to trade biblical patriarchy, male leadership, 
for radical feminism. You're going to trade freedom to preach the gospel for enhanced welfare for all, including dangerous criminals. And you think that doing that signals how much you love God and how much you love others. You love others so much that you're willing to put someone in office who's going to make preaching the gospel illegal. And you call yourself a Christian. This is supposed to be to honor Christ and to show that you fear God. Seriously? You're going to trade seminary and church tax-exempt status for free college. This, this knucklehead on the Democratic side comes out the other day and says it's going to cost $150 billion to pay for free college for everybody. And immediately, before he can even get off the platform, his handlers are saying, oh, oh yeah, yeah, the number's off. It's more like $400 billion. Well, who's going to pay, who's going to pay for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and ask yourself this question. This vile union between the government and the academy, could, could it, what could possibly go wrong? Now you have the academy doing nothing but peddling propaganda from the government. Folks, this is communism at its basics. The government runs the academy. The academy brainwashes the kids to do exactly what the government wants them to do. If the government is going to do this, the government will now be the sole power over the academy. That is way too much control, way too much power. What you're giving up versus what you're gaining is unacceptable. It's a bad deal. You're going to give up gun ownership and property rights for what this society calls love. Can't get my head around it. You're going to give up free speech for what this society calls tolerance. Tolerance. What kind of tolerance? Have you seen the videos of these people trying to have lunch or dinner and having these thugs come in and get in their face, trying to force them to hold their fist up and support Black Lives Matter? You know, here's the thing about that. People don't do that to me, and I don't think it's because of me necessarily. I'm not a little guy, but I still don't think it's just because of me. Here's what I think. I think that there is no temptation taken man, but such as is common to man. And that God is faithful not to allow us to be tempted above what we are able. And I think the Lord keeps me from that kind of temptation because surely I would probably sin. I mean, I can't. It would If I were confronted with a situation like that and did not sin, it would be a miracle of God. A divine intervention of the Holy Spirit. Get in my face and while I'm trying to have lunch with my wife. Hmm. If morality and order are possible apart from God, folks, 
And this is where neutrality comes in. What use does society have for Christianity? Christianity quickly becomes an ignorant, bigoted, hate-filled religion. Even Dawkins is, is admitting this at this point, the atheist, Richard Dawkins. Even he sees this. He sees what happens to society if you expunge religion. Now the pagans set their own morality, and it becomes the minority is no longer protected. You had a real problem on your hands. Arguments, bad arguments, right? Let's talk about some of the bad arguments. The abortion argument, where people are saying that um, pro-life actually means advocating for all those created in the image of God, and this means opposing things like locking up illegal immigrants and um, standing up for those who are um, oppressed and don't have as much privilege and so on and so forth. Look, pro-life has always meant the protection of the unborn. And we're not going to change that definition just because you want to change it. I do not have to be for open borders uh, in order to be against abortion and consistent in my claims of being pro-life. It is an utterly ridiculous argument for people to make. Number one, murder is a violation of the commandment. You tell me in the, in the Scripture, from the Scripture, how having a legal process in place for entering the country and becoming citizens is a violation of the commandments. It's not a violation of the commandments. Follow the laws. In fact, the Scripture commands that we do follow the laws. At any rate, I will say that, it, that there is no way for you to make the case that having immigration, an, a, a legal process, an immigration policy in place is somehow construed or should be construed as being um, anti-pro-life. Such a claim is utterly ridiculous top to bottom. Shifting on to economic equality. Um, so, the problem with this argument is that it buys into the belief that we can achieve economic equality across the board. Um, so, the problem with that is, is, first of all, we've never seen that in human history in any society whatsoever. It has never existed. It is a utopian dream. It is a tool used to manipulate people into supporting something that they think is going to lead to a particular outcome when the people who are putting it forward know that it's not possible. That's the first problem with this idea. It's utterly ridiculous. Jesus himself said, the poor you will always have with you. God dispenses gifts to men and when I say men, I mean human beings, according to his purpose. Some people are incredibly gifted, other people not so much. That is by God's plan. That is according to his purpose. So this idea 
that we could achieve economic equality is utterly foolish. It ignores all the other factors that go into what makes someone successful in this life and someone else not so much successful. It ignores all the factors that are involved in general that lead to people living under bridges and that lead to people living in really giant mansions has nothing to do with skin color, has nothing to do with ethnicity, and a whole lot to do with decisions, choices, behavior, and everything to do with God's plan and purpose. Economic equality, the elimination of the notion of privilege, is a false utopian utopian dream that will never be realized because of the existence of sin. Christians should not waste time, effort, money, resources trying to achieve social, socioeconomic equality. We need to spend our time, energy, money, resources on preaching and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, baptizing converts, making dis disciples who are going to shine their light into this world by living a holy, godly life and doing good in society. Good that individuals can see. Specific acts of kindness that individuals can really clearly see and quantify. They witness it, and then they hear the gospel. Justice, we hear. Justice, justice, justice. What do you mean by justice? This is another term that has become the uh, victim of equivocation. A lot of people don't mean justice when they use the word justice. For instance, helping the poor, taking care of widows and orphans. That isn't justice. That's the wrong word. That's mercy. Justice is a legal term, right? So in the Old Testament, and in any society, repugnant evil men will take advantage of the vulnerable. And no one, hardly anyone, is more vulnerable than orphans and widows. They can't take care of themselves in many cases. Powerful men can come in and oppress and abuse and use them. And it happens all over the world. This was being practiced in Israel in the Old Testament, much to the utter amazement of the prophets who spoke against it. It's one thing to have a system that doesn't care at all for widows and orphans. It's another thing to operate in a system that promotes and turns a blind eye to the abuse and oppression of widows and orphans. And still, it is another thing to have a system that actually does look after widows and orphans, but not as well as you think it should. We fit the latter. We do not fit the two former, even though there are individual powerful men in the world who are involved in abusing children, orphans, widows, and taking, taking advantage of them. 
the concern of the church is not to eliminate those injustices in society. The concern of the church is to make sure it is operating itself with a different, a distinct, a unique kind of justice that the world can look at and see that's what justice looks like. And that's what it should look like in the world. Same thing for, for so think of it this way. Christians set the example for what marriage, we're supposed to set the example for what marriage is, is supposed to look like, what sex is supposed to look like, right? Uh, we help each other, we feed each other, we clothe each other, we're faithful to our wives, our husbands, right? We treat each other with justice. We, we don't take brothers to court and sue them. We deal with these things internally, and we have a system that is fair and right and just. This is what Israel was supposed to be modeling, not for pagan governments, for the church. Israel was a type of the church. So when you, people start, when you hear people start using the Old Testament Israel uh, and implying that this is what America should look like, you've got right away a very serious problem with that person's interpretation of the Old Testament because inevitably what they will do is they won't just stop there. They'll come into the New Testament and where we see Jesus talking about blessed are the poor in spirit, these guys will say, no, blessed are the poor, the literal poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. All the poor is going to inherit the kingdom of God. No, no, no. The poor in spirit, people who understand that without God they are miserable and wretched and hopeless, and poor. Blessed are those people. For their eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel, and they understand that their riches are in heaven. The oppressed. We're supposed to, we're supposed to do something about the oppressed because Jesus came to set the oppressed free. So we should fight racism, systemic racism everywhere. Wrong interpretation of that verse. In that verse, the right understanding of that text is that everyone is oppressed. Everyone outside of Christ lives under the dominion of darkness, under the oppression of the devil. And Jesus came to set the oppressed free spiritually. He did not come to end oppression in pagan society. This is a massive problem with how these people are handling the Scripture. They have their political ideas, their political ideology, they have their political philosophies and their pagan philosophies, and they impose these on the text and they read the Bible through that grid, making it support their agenda. It is a mishandling of the text. Just look throughout the writings of the apostles in the New Testament and try to find these ideas actually in action, where you see the, the apostles doing these things and writing to churches, commanding them to do these things, you will not find it anywhere. Then there's the argument to the man. John Piper used this argument recently. Some men are morally unfit for the office of president of the United States. Well, I have news for you. I have seen, I think, 10 presidents I don't remember Johnson because I was a child. But I have seen 10 presidents over the course of my life. And when I 
talk about fitness, moral fitness, I'm speaking as a Christian. And as a Christian, I can tell you, I have not seen a morally fit man for the office of president from a Christian perspective. They are all morally unfit to lead a nation. All of them. Because for me as a Christian, the only fit person to lead men is a godly man. A man who glorifies God with his life. A man who embraces the truth of Scripture, who walks in the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have those kind of politicians in our, in our society. So the some men are... Trump is, Trump is mean on Twitter. Biden is nice. So we're going to throw Trump under the bus because he has a checkered past with women, checkered past with women. But so does Biden. And so does every other politician in Washington. Sorry. I mean, there might be a few who don't, but it's few. Every man listening to this understands the nature of the sexual drive in human males. Combine that with power, combine that with influence, combine that with privilege, and you can't tell me that there's a large number of men in Washington, D.C., who have not behaved in a manner unbecoming where sexual ethics are concerned, especially Christian sexual ethics, and those are the only ethics that matter to us. Shift gears to one issue, voting. Mark Dever makes this argument. One issue voting, bad idea. Sends a bad signal to uh, people in the black community because Christians don't love them because we're not taking up their cause and fighting for their freedom. Well, black people are free. Well, we're, we're not fighting to end their oppression. Well, black people are not being oppressed. Okay? Uh, you show me legitimate oppression... And I'll speak out against it. Okay, I mean, I'll make a deal with you, right? George Floyd, when he was killed by police officers, was resisting arrest, was high on two different illegal drugs, and was dying because of those two illegal drugs and the long history of drug abuse that had defined his life and the long history of lawless living that had defined his life. Sorry. I am not going to call that unjust. I'm not going to call it unjust. We're talking about a God who stoned homosexuals in the Old Testament. We're talking about a God who dismisses sexual, uh, inappropriate sexual behavior in church members from the church immediately. Don't ask any questions. You're done. Out. This is what Paul said. If a man who claims to be a Christian is sexually immoral, have nothing to do with him. Now, this, this kind of thinking is shocking to modern Christians because we don't pay any attention to those moral principles laid out in the New Testament, the principles of discipline and rebuke and correction and shaming, the practice of shaming. We pay little regard to those things. We're far more concerned with people who are having trouble with COVID, people who are having trouble because they're having to homeschool their children and work, and it's, oh, it's just so cumbersome, and I just am so depressed, and I can't handle it. 
Wow, could you imagine going back 2,000 years and being put in prison just because you have expressed faith in Christ? How could you possibly handle that? We have to get a little tougher, folks. This argument to the man just simply doesn't work because there is no man. And it's a, it's a logical fallacy. We're not voting for a man. We're not voting for Trump and against Biden. We are voting for the idea of that Constitution that we want to preserve because, because it provides for the flourishing of the churches and the gospel. That's what we're concerned about. When you start to think it's the church's job to eliminate certain sins from the culture, and you start to think it's the church's job to end oppression and to fight things like racism and sex trafficking and all these other things, you have muddied the water. So that now, figuring out who to vote for becomes a very difficult decision. And it, it isn't because it should be a difficult position. It is because you have bought into ideas and beliefs that are not true of the church and what our mission is in this world. We've been left behind to preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize converts. We have not been left behind to improve society, to, to achieve some sort of utopian dream, to end privilege, to end racism. We're fighting racism as if it is as prevalent as adultery. I can guarantee you there are more adulterers, Pastor, in your church than there are racists. I don't care what church you're in. I guarantee you. To a church, there are more adulterers in your church than there are racists. There are more men and women with wandering eyes who are lusting in their hearts, who are looking at porn, and who are carrying out those acts than there are people in your church who have derogatory views of a person because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity. They exist. But the problem is nowhere near as big as it is in these other areas. You have more liars, <laughs> more covetous people. I mean, it's ridiculous. One issue voting, if there is one issue, is this the flourishing of the gospel in the churches. That's enough. That is enough. Dever is wrong. I am not willing to give up religious liberty so that I can appear to fight this false cause of massive epidemic racism in American society that doesn't exist. I'm not willing to do that. And even if there was massive, a, a massive epidemic of racism in American society, I'm still not going to surrender my religious freedom in order to fight an epidemic of racism because religious freedom is more important than abortion, homosexual marriage, feminism, more important than fighting all of those things. It's more important than fighting racism because if the only hope of society is the gospel, 
You have no, if you lose that tool, these other tools will do nothing. Even if you're successful in eliminating racism from society, you can't give them the gospel. And if you do, you've lost your job, your churches have lost their tax-exempt status, and eventually you become, it becomes almost impossible for you to do much good. And the good that you do do is temporal good. This is backwards thinking, folks. Someone says, well, so what if we lose our freedom? Other people around the world aren't free. Well, yeah, true. Other people around the world. But I would wonder what they would ask, what they would say to you if you ask them, if you had a choice, if you could make it so that your churches could be free, would you do it? I guarantee you, every persecuted Christian in every country that persecutes them would give you the same answer. I absolutely would. If you could go into a ballot box, if you could go into a, a, a little station with a, with a ballot in hand and turn a switch and have religious freedom, would you do it? Yes would be the answer. On every single, in every single case. It's foolish to think otherwise. Here's what the church gets, guys. Abortion on demand will eventually become a prohibition against any speech and opposition whatsoever against abortion. You know it's coming. Tolerating homosexuality shifts to celebrating homosexuality and eventually leads to the prohibition of any speech opposing homosexuality and transgenderism. It will be legal to fire you. Churches will lose their tax-exempt status. Seminaries will do the same and their accreditation. Guarantee you. And if you say that's not happening, let's not talk because I really only want to interact with honest people because you're being dishonest. Banning assault weapons may sound reasonable to some people. I don't think it's any of your business, but it may sound reasonable to some people, but here, here's what it leads to. It leads to outright prohibition on owning any gun. No tax-exempt status for the churches and seminaries. Speech that criticizes political figures will be outlawed. The Obama administration has already argued that they should be allowed to ban movies that criticize politicians before the Supreme Court. Fact. That's a fact, folks. Indoctrinating our kids in public schools, which we all know is going on right now, moves to the outright prohibition of homeschooling. They want our children. And forget about street preaching. It's done. Wrapping this up, the mission of the church is this. Preach the gospel, baptize converts, make disciples. Pretty simple. Preach the gospel, baptize converts, and make disciples. Let me go over to 2 Thessalonians. Where the Apostle Paul, it was for this reason he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts 
in every good work and word. He also told the Thessalonians, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. You want to be rescued from perverse and evil men? Go vote for the GOP. And then again, he goes on and says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. Why? So that, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Amen. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com. Thank you.